Morning, church. You should turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Continuing our study through this section of Matthew's Gospels and chapters 8 and 9 uniquely focus on the authority of Jesus. So Matthew chapter 9, if you're taking notes, the title of the sermon today is Jesus has authority over sin. Jesus has authority over sin. A couple years ago, pastor and author David Platt wrote a book entitled Something Needs to Change. Anyone read that? Got a few, anybody? No. You should. It's a good book. It's a challenging read. Something Needs to Change. Platt titled the book that because it's something of what he feels and something that he's convinced of when he looks around at all the need in the world. The sense in us. Man, something needs to change. We were just hearing the update about what's going on in Ukraine and thinking about the war there and people in Belarus living under the, the, the real fear, if you can imagine, of nuclear war breaking out over you. I, you hear something like that and you're like, man, this can't stay like that. We live in a world that's just filled with sin and the effects of sin. And so marriages are broken. Greed runs rampant. People live impoverished. Many are homeless. Addiction is widespread. People are dying from preventable diseases. Others are dying all alone in nursing homes. Babies are being aborted. Little boys and girls are being trafficked. And something needs to change. And yet, we're still, there are so many around the world, and even in our own cities and our own communities, who are dying without ever hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Never hearing about Jesus. And we can't even imagine we're so saturated with Jesus. We're so saturated in this church with the things of Christ. Can you imagine never hearing about Jesus Christ? So many things need to change in the world, physical things and spiritual things. And there's, there's something else that needs to change in the world. Now, there may be something that needs to change in you, that needs to change in me. And this is straight out of Platt's book. Something else that needs to change is that so many Christians, like many of us here today, sit in services a lot like this one here today, where we sing songs and we hear sermons celebrating about how Jesus is the hope of the world. And yet then we're confronted with all the needs of the world and we do not fall on our faces weeping for those who do not have this hope and we don't take action to make this hope known to them. And if that's true, something needs to change. Before there can be change out there, there's gotta be change in here. But then here's, here's, here's the point. It's not just that change needs to happen, something needs to change. The point, the whole point of our faith, the whole point of Christianity is that something can change. 
In us, change is possible. As Christians, we know this, right? I mean, fundamental to being a Christian is that you have experienced the greatest change possible. We were sinners separated from God, and we have died. If we had died in that state from Him, we would have been separated from Him forever. But becoming a Christian means repenting and believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's a fundamental change, a foundational change in our lives. Once we're dead to sin, or in sin, now we're alive in Christ. Once we're separated from God, now we're adopted as sons. Once we lived in the domain of darkness, and now we've been delivered from it and transferred into the kingdom of God's own beloved son. By God's grace, so many of us have been eternally changed. And if you aren't a Christian and you're here today, uh, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ, then we would all, me and all these people here with me today, would invite you, we would implore you, you can be eternally changed right now. It is the power of the gospel to save. It is the power of Jesus to, to save. And you can be eternally changed in this moment. And we hope that you will be. I hope by the end of this sermon, you are eternally changed. Because you can be changed and we can experience change and all of us who have been changed by God for eternity, we know change is really possible. Only here's the thing. To change, just like when we were converted, to change, we have to be honest about ourselves. We have to be honest about ourselves. We have to get ourselves in front of this Bible, this Bible we are opening here this morning together. We have to open this Bible and say, do we really believe what we read here? Do we really believe that Jesus is the only hope of this world? Do we really believe that and live like that is true? If not, something needs to change. And if you're interested in change, if you want to be changed, here's how the Bible says we change as Christians. If you want to change today, this is your ticket to transformation. 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So I know that's a, a mouthful of a, of a passage, but basically it means change comes as, as we see Jesus in all his glory, as we behold him in his glory, and we think he is glorious, and what he does is glorious, I don't wanna be like him, and when we see like that, with eyes of faith, the spirit works within us to transform us to be like that which we are seeing. We become like what we look at. Like we become like what we admire, Jesus. That's the work of the Spirit. We see his glory, we love it, we wanna be more like that, and the Spirit comes and says, I can work with that. And that's what we are asking for when we come into our passage today. You see, because if you want to change in the way that we've been talking about, and it's the way I want to change, and so I'm preaching to myself here, and so if, you're, if like me, you want to change, to have your heart break for those in need, and if you, if you want to want, if you want to want to do something for them, if you want to make your life count in a world that's just filled with needs, 
the Matthew 9 is particularly, particularly applicable for us. Because in these first eight verses of this wonderful passage, Matthew tells us about a time when Jesus was confronted with the urgent physical need of a paralytic who had even the more urgent and ultimate spiritual need of the forgiveness of his sins. And Matthew gives us here this moving portrait of Jesus, a Jesus we can see and glorify, a portrait of Jesus ministering to both this man's needs, Jesus healing his body, Jesus healing his soul. It's a moving picture of the compassion of Jesus and the authority of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And so if you want to pray, then, or I mean change, then, then this is the prayer we pray as we go into this. We're saying, God, help us to see Jesus in this passage. God, I'm asking, help us to see Jesus in this passage by the power of your Holy Spirit, to see his glory, to be drawn to him and to to want to live like him. And we pray that you would make us like him. God, don't, don't let us leave here today like how we came in here. Change us, Lord. Transform us. That you might use us. to minister to the needs all around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at our passage this morning. Please follow along, I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew chapter nine, verses one through eight. This is God's holy and authoritative word. And getting into a boat, Jesus, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Ah, May the Lord bless now both the preaching and the believing of his word. We want to look at two points today as we work our way through this passage. Two points. The first is going to be the urgent needs of the lost, and then the second, the sovereign authority of our Lord. So first, the urgent needs of the lost. Uh, We're told here that Jesus has traveled. He's traveled from the southeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, where the Gerardian event happened, the two demonized men, and he's moved back up to the northwest where Capernaum is. And Matthew tells us, verse 2, he uses that word, behold, behold. He's used that word a lot in chapters 8 and 9. It's, it's an exclamation mark in Greek. They didn't have punctuation points, and so they used words to make that point. And so it's like this statement that just says, suddenly, unexpectedly, without warning, like, get what's about to happen here. 
And Matthew's been using, he's obsessed with this word in, in chapters eight and nine. He says, early in chapter eight, behold, a leopard came to him. And then behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. And then behold, the whole herd of pigs rushed down the bank into the sea and, dar- and drowned. And then now we have behold, some people brought to him, Jesus, a paralytic lying on a bed. Now that's all Matthew tells us hear about this story, but Mark and, and Luke fill it out for us. So what they tell us is that four friends brought this paralytic, and what they did was to bring him to Jesus is they made a hole in the roof and lowered their friend down through the hole before Jesus. You remember that story, right? It's like one of the classic stories in kids' Bibles. We all grew up hearing this story, and, and it's a great story. That's why we love it, right? Mark and Luke tell us Jesus was teaching in a house Maybe it was Peter's, uh, or James and John lived in the town as well, but Jesus has been to Peter's house with his mother-in-law, so maybe it was Peter's house, but we don't know. But we do know Jesus is teaching in somebody's house, and the place is packed out, all right? It's packed out. There are people in the doorway. Wouldn't that be neat if we had like people like so packed out in here once that we had people in the doorway? Just trying to like listen in about Jesus. I went to, I went to a church in college once where so many college students started to come at once. God was doing a real amazing work that we had to sit in the aisles for a season because, while they built a new building because they just had no room left. So, but it was like so much fun and energy and because everybody just wanted to know about Jesus. And so that's what's happening here. So many people want to know about Jesus. They're filling the doorway. People are looking through the windows. They're standing room only. And then we're told Jesus is preaching the word. Jesus is preaching the word. Now, just imagine this scene for a minute. Four men arrive carrying a stretcher. They've brought their friend to be healed by Jesus, but they can't get close to Jesus. The crowd's too big. And, and don't picture like quarter lot, acre lots here uh, with lawns and sidewalks and that kind of space. And like These are tightly crammed quarters with narrow streets. And so people are just flowing out everywhere and the guys couldn't get their friend close enough to get Jesus' attention. So what's a friend to do? Like, do you pack it up and go home and say, well, you know, we'll get an earlier start tomorrow. Who, you know, maybe we can get there. No, at least one of the guys says, I know. Let's go up on the roof and we'll dig a hole through it. Yeah. Literally, Mark says, they unroofed the roof. They unroofed the roof. I said in first service, my guess is that the guy who suggested this is a lot like Michael Hoffman. That's just my thought. <laughs> You know, for most of you who know Michael, uh, very resourceful, maybe a little reckless sometimes, but a heart full of love. And that was this guy. Let's unroof the roof and get our friend to Jesus. And the others are like, cool, let's do it. Let's do this. Now, this house is probably a a single floor dwelling with a a flat roof and steps on the outside that led up to it. And so roofs in those days, they were kind of like decks. Right? They were this place where you could go up and entertain guests and, and escape the heat, or, or you could even sleep up there. And so they were made with like they would have these huge beams laid across the, the walls, and then they would have sticks laid across those beams, and then they would fill it all in with sticks and briar and whatever else, and then they would coat it with this, this really thick um, clay like mud that would dry and harden, and it was super sturdy, and you could have people up on top of your roof and stuff. And so the guys make their way up on top of the roof. And, and they start digging into it. And that's what they'd have to do, right? So if you've always pictured they're kind of like, you know, taking some hay and like moving it aside and like kind of, you know, doing something like that. Like, no, these, this is hard enough for a party of people to be up on this roof together. And so these guys, they, they must be like digging, like someone brought an, 
a pickaxe, I'm like, they're like pounding into, trying to dig down into this house, right? And so imagine what it was like on the inside. You're sitting there listening to Jesus, the best sermon you've ever heard in your life. Like, this, you're in, it's just incredible. People are overflowing. There's so excitement. Pass the olives and the crackers or whatever they're snacking on. Like, this is great. Maybe they had coffee back then. I don't know. And so everyone's just enjoying it. And all of a sudden, up above, you hear like construction noise breaking out on, on the roof on top of you. What in the world is going on? What, we're, we're meeting with Jesus here. Like, Jesus is preaching. Like, you don't interrupt Jesus' sermons. Like, what in the world is happening here? And then all of a sudden, like, clumps of dirt start falling on people and sticks are breaking through and all of a sudden there's a hole in the ceiling. Like four guys' heads will pop through, you know, and they're all sweaty and smiling and like, hey! And everyone's like, hey! Like, it's incredible to think about this story. The friends had done it. They unroofed the roof for their friend's sake and it must have been a big hole because they were able to lower a stretcher through it, a bed with ropes tied to the four corners and they lowered the paralytic right in front of Jesus because no crowd was gonna keep these guys from getting their friend to Jesus. Isn't that a great story? It's a thrilling story and we're gonna come back to the friends here in just a bit but first I wanna focus in on the paralytic because this paralytic here, he highlights for us Two of the needs of the lost. Two things about the needs that the lost have. And the first is this. This story highlights for us that their spiritual need is ultimate. Their spiritual need is ultimate. We see this in verse two, where Jesus says to the man, take heart, my son. Which, can we just pause there for a minute? Because, I mean, just note the compassion of Jesus with this guy. We read over that and we just think, oh, that's nice. But like, I mean, think about it. Here is this guy. His body is broken. Like he couldn't even get to Jesus to get help. He had to get help. But then to get to Jesus, they had to literally break into somebody's house. They had to break through the roof. They interrupted Jesus's meeting. They interrupted all these people being ministered to. They interrupted Jesus's sermon. And you're getting lowered down into the middle of it. I, I bet the crowd's going like, what in the world? Somebody owns this house and they're saying, what did you do to my roof? Like, I mean, like, th this would be a stressful situation. And the guy's lowered down, he's right in front of Jesus, and Jesus perceives everything that's going on in this guy. And the first thing he wants to say to him is, take heart, don't be afraid. Don't worry about it, man. You can come with your mess and you can make a mess. Don't worry, it's all right. Take heart, my son, Jesus says to the paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. Now, for us who've studied the story and studied Jesus, that sounds about right. But if you think about it from the perspective of the paralytic, that's kind of an odd thing to say. Because we're not told that the man asked for forgiveness. We don't know if he did, maybe he asked Jesus for forgiveness, but we don't know, uh, we're not told that. But what we do know is that it was common thinking in that day to associate physical suffering with personal sin. So maybe this man's paralysis was tied to a specific sin in his life. Or maybe it was just something he was born with or due to an accident, we don't know. But we do know that Jesus makes a pronouncement here that shocks the crowd and especially the religious leaders there. He says this paralyzed man is a sinner and Jesus forgives him. I mean, he says this man's ultimate need is his spiritual condition and I can heal that. 
You see, more important than this man's physical paralysis was his spiritual malice. And so his ultimate need was not to stand on his feet, but was to be forgiven for his sin. And this highlights for us the ultimate need of every single person in the world and every single person in this gathering. More than anything else, we need to be forgiven for our sin and reconciled to our God. And that is the gospel, friends, the good news that God has made a way for us to be forgiven for all our sins, reconciled to him for eternal life through faith in Jesus. His saving work on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, this is the gospel and Jesus commands us, go into the world and preach this good news. Go into a world filled with ultimate spiritual needs and preach the gospel of saving grace. And do that starting with the people right around us. Start with the people in urgent and ultimate spiritual need at our workplace and at our neighborhood and sitting next to us at our restaurants. We start with the people right around us. But then we don't stop there. We don't stop there. We lift up our eyes and we see that this world is filled with over three billion people who have absolutely no one in their life who can preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Over three billion people who, who know no one who knows Jesus. And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Romans 10, 14 and 15. Friends, somebody has to go to these three billion people knowing that if nobody goes to them, then they cannot be saved from their sin. So somebody has to go to them and tell them, or they're going to spend eternity separated from God in hell. Friends, do we believe this Bible? We have to feel what's at stake in passages like this one. God help us to feel what's at stake here the ultimate and urgent spiritual need that's all around us and all around the world. I mean, we are prone to think of needs as primarily physical, the impoverished or the sick or, or whatever. Those needs are real, and we'll talk about them in just a minute, but obviously the bigger part of the story, the bigger part of it is the forgiveness of this man's sin. So, Lord, help us see the ultimate spiritual need of the lost and help us to go to them with all boldness, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, to go to those right around us and to go to those around the world. I'm praying God raises us up as evangelists and that God raises from us missionaries who will go. We need to go and preach the good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. The spiritual need of the lost is ultimate. Do we live like that's true? But then second, often, their physical need is urgent. Their physical need is urgent. We, we don't know how bad this man's paralysis was. Apparently he was bad enough he had to be carried around. People had to carry, care for him. And friends, this is just like how all throughout the Bible we are commanded to care for people through their earthly suffering. Again, do we believe this word is true? Because James 2 says if we don't care for people in their suffering, we don't have faith. 
What good is it, my brothers, James, right? If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that save, faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's not real faith. If, you, if, we, if we turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to those in urgent physical need, our faith is worthless. It's in vain. It's dead. So let me ask you then, how do you respond to the collision of ultimate spiritual and urgent physical needs? Because they always go hand in hand. Right, like it's easy for us to think from the comfort of our Sunday morning here, the comfort of me just kind of talking to you about God's word, the comfort of our own homes. Oh sure, I'd love to evangelize. Oh sure, I would love to get the gospel spread out. But what about all the accompanying physical needs that need ministered to as well? Are you ready to take those on? If you're gonna evangelize the family next door, are you also willing to jump in and help them with all their brokenness? If you're willing to go downtown and share the gospel on the streets, are you also willing to help those who live on the streets? If you're willing to send money over to support people doing mission work overseas or or countries where there's tour war, are you also willing to go or to send your children over there? Because urgent or ultimate spiritual need is so often accompanied by urgent physical needs that the love of Christ should compel us to care about. In this, we need examples like that of George Mueller. Now, I've been reading a biography on George Mueller, um, and if you're looking for a great biography to read, uh, just pick up any of them on George Mueller. His life is compelling. Now, at the age of 26, uh, back in 1832, he became the pastor of a small church in, in Bristol, England. And every day, he would walk the streets and and he would see all of these children everywhere who had no mom or dad, and they, they lived on the streets or in state-run poor houses where they were treated badly, and, and, and his heart broke for them in their need. And so the first thing he decided to do, he felt led by God to do, was to, to start a kind of school for them, a Sunday school kind of like program where he could teach them the scriptures and try to lead them to knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it was a good work, and yet still his heart broke over all the needs that they were surrounded with and confronted with on a daily basis, and he began to pray about it and what God would do, and, 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 and on one occasion he wrote in a journal, oh Lord, he had seen a kid struggling, suffering on the streets, and he said, may this, if it be the Lord's will, lead me to do something for the temporal wants of poor children. And so it wasn't long after that that the Lord gave him the idea of of starting an orphan home where he could both evangelize the children and care for their temporal needs. He could do both together. And so Mueller first opened several small orphan homes before he eventually built five large ones. And with God's help over the course of Mueller's life, those homes cared for over 10,000 orphans which is an amazing fact in and of itself, but it's even more amazing when you put it in perspective that in those days in England, there was only accommodation for 3,600 orphans in all of England. 
And in one city, he was caring for 10,000. And his example became so compelling that 50 years later, England was transformed so that there were accommodation for over 100,000 orphans in the country. Because largely, Christians were so compelled by the example of, of Mueller, so compelled to relook at the scriptures and look at Jesus Christ, that they said, we too want to care for the temporal and the spiritual needs of the lost. And can I just commend all of you who are fostering and adopting? Because you're doing the same thing. And you give the rest of us a compelling example in the way that you are evangelizing these children and caring for their temporal needs. Because the two go hand in hand. And we want to be like Mueller who followed Jesus Christ. We want to be like Jesus Christ. And we too want to be willing to take up both. So are you willing to meet both the ultimate and urgent needs of the lost? Point number two, then, that we want to look at in this passage, then, point number two is the sovereign authority of the Lord. What's the answer to the ultimate and urgent needs of the lost? Well, really, it is the sovereign authority of our Lord. In verse three, we're given, here's Matthew's word again, behold. Okay, he's back to it. Okay, he's working this one. He says, behold. Look again at verses three through seven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. All right, so Bible study moment. What title does Jesus give himself in verse 6? What's that? Son of Man. That's right. Yeah. So this is Jesus' favorite self-designation, and usually it's associated with his humanity, his suffering, his death. You know, there's Son of God, which emphasizes his divinity, and there's Son of Man, which emphasizes really his humility. But it's not always that. It's not only that. It refers refers to more than that. So one passage in your Old Testament is a prophecy found in Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, a prophecy about the Messiah. And it says, behold, with the cloud of heavens, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So, the title Son of Man was not merely a humble reference to Jesus' humanity, it was that, but it was also a powerful statement regarding Jesus' sovereign authority. And his authority is all over this text. It's just all over this text. And so, we're going to look at three expressions of it. First, note Jesus' authority to read our hearts. Note Jesus' authority to read our hearts. As soon as Jesus pronounces forgiveness of the paralytic sins, he looks over at the scribes and he sees their questioning and accusing hearts. They don't say a word. They don't need to say a word. Jesus knows what is in their heart. J.C. Ryle observes, and I didn't put this on their overhead for you, but he notes in this passage, they said secretly among themselves, this man blasphemeth. They probably supposed, I like this, they probably supposed that no one knew what was going on in their minds. They had not yet learned that the Son of Man could read hearts. 
and discern spirits. I like that. They had not yet learned that the Son of Man could read hearts and discern spirits. Their malicious thought was publicly exposed. They were put to open shame. So they had not yet learned that the Son of Man could read hearts and discern spirits, but he could. And so their malicious thought was publicly exposed. They were put to open shame. And at that moment in Matthew's gospel, what happens is the line of conflict is drawn. From before this, we have not seen the religious leaders uh, you know, accosting Jesus anyway. They have not been opposed to Jesus. But here, Jesus exposes their inner motives. Jesus exposes them. He shames them. And from then on, they hate him. Why? Why do they hate him so much? Because they love darkness more than they love light. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. John 3.19. They loved the darkness rather than the light. And if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 1 John 1.6. Friends, there's an important lesson for us in all this. In the same way, Jesus knows what is in every one of our own hearts. Right now, he does. All of our hidden motives, all of our secret thoughts, all of our emotions, or lack thereof, toward Jesus, all the sin we don't want anyone else to know about, all of it is known by Jesus. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in creation is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Friends, Jesus sees. And this is not, you know, the pastor up front trying to like set you up for a guilt trip or something like that. This is, this is the pastor telling you reality. Jesus sees. Jesus knows. Jesus records. And one day, Jesus will call us to give account. And Romans 2.16 declares to us on that day, God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Surely this is a thought that should sober us and humble us. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. Like Psalm 139 states, He knows when I sit down and when I rise up. He discerns my thoughts from afar. He searches out my path and my lying down. He's acquainted with all my ways. For some of you, appropriately sobered, that may make you feel like distance from Jesus. To which I would encourage you with the words of Christ. Take courage, child. Your sins are forgiven.
That Jesus knows everything is not meant to push us away from him. The exact opposite. He already knows. He already knows. It's meant to draw us in and free us. Take heart, child. Be of good courage. Your sins are forgiven. And we ought to be thankful, then, for the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses all our sin. Furthermore, we ought to often pray, then, from that, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's Psalm 19, verse 14. Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority to read our hearts. But then second, second, he has the authority to heal our sicknesses. He has the authority to heal our sicknesses. We've seen this already several times in Matthew. We already spent a a good amount of time, a whole sermon on this one. It's so common in Jesus' ministry that we're gonna see it again and again and again, and and we're, you know, the temptation is to just take it for granted. And so that's why I'm hitting it here again, because may we never cease to be amazed and awed and just absolutely encouraged by the reality that Jesus can speak and paralysis can disappear. That when the Son of Man says to a paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home, when it's the Son of Man that says that, it's the most natural thing in the world for that man to rise up and go home. Because our God, Jesus Christ, has sovereign authority. He can heal our sicknesses. And may that just encourage us to keep bringing our sicknesses and our sufferings before the throne of grace. Jesus can heal them. Jesus might heal them. He doesn't always, but he can. And so we should go to him constantly with them. But then even better, even better, third and finally, it gets even better. Jesus not only has authority to heal our sicknesses, Jesus has authority to forgive our sins. And that is the greatest news of all. Jesus has authority to forgive our sins. And this is the best news because all our physical suffering ultimately goes back to a spiritual source. When sin entered the world, so did suffering and pain of all sorts. Romans 5, sin comes into the world, death came with it. So that means every headache we have, every body ache we feel, every form of cancer, every type of tumor testifies to the reality that this world is not as it should be. Our ultimate problem is that we are separated from God by sin and in a world that is full of suffering. And so as David Platt says, our ultimate need is not to be rid of our maladies, but to be reconciled to our maker. And this is what Jesus has come to do. The scribes are actually right in some form and fashion. Only God can forgive sin. They were right about that, but what they failed to see, what they failed to appreciate is that God in the flesh was standing right in front of them. And this is the good news of the Bible. This is the greatest news in all the world, that God has not left sinners alone in a world full of sin and suffering, but God himself has come to us. Jesus came and lived the life we could not live, a life of perfect, sinless obedience to the Father. And then, though he had no sin for which to die of his own, he chose to die on a cross for our sins as our substitute. Jesus died for our sins. He paid the punishment we deserve. And then the good news just keeps on getting better because Jesus didn't just stay dead. He rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. And now he offers reconciliation to God for anyone, anywhere who will repent of their sins and believe in him. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news that that the source of suffering has been severed by Jesus Christ. 
It doesn't remove all suffering, not in this life, but it severs the root of all suffering. The good news is not that Jesus will necessarily heal you of all your sicknesses now. He still has causes and reasons why they may still continue at time. And so he does not, the good news is not that Jesus will necessarily heal you of all your sicknesses now, but that he will forgive you your sins forever. And so to quote David Platt one last time, for all who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, you can know that cancer will not have the last word. Tumors will not have the last word. Alzheimer's will not have the last word. Parkinson's will not have the last word. Pain will not have the last word. Heartaches, hospital rooms, and hospice care will not have the last word. Death itself will not have the last word because death has been defeated by the Son of Man. His name is Jesus, and he will have the last word. Amen? That is good news. So, in closing then, let's consider two brief applications of all of this. Two brief applications. First, we must glorify God for his mercy. We must glorify God for his mercy. We see this directly in verse 8, the last verse of the passage. When the crowd saw this, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. These guys feared Jesus, they marveled at him, and they glorified God because Jesus did marvelous things in their eyes. He has all the authority of God to meet the greatest need of man. This passage makes an incredible claim, but not only that, it makes a credible demonstration of the authority of Jesus to meet our needs. And in this, friends, this text is a gift to us. It is a gift to remind us that when we're just going through life, busy and often distracted. You're gonna leave here today and you know, before you even step out these doors, you will begin to be distracted and busy. Cares of this world will crush down upon you. Sorry, this is bad news. Um, Jesus will be there, it'll be okay. But, but right, the cares of this life will just come tumbling back in and, and you will be tempted, you will be distracted. But this text graciously reminds us that the most serious need we have is the forgiveness of our sins. And listen, all of us, at least most of us, Here's the deal, we, most of us, many of us have a kind of rise up and walk category, right? Some temporal need, some physical, urgent physical need that's very real. And I'm not making light of it, just like I'm not making light of the fact that this man was a paralytic. But here's the thing, whatever that category is for you, it, it threatens to dominate your perspective on life. It threatens to dominate your perspective on life. A temporal need or some kind of needs that you have that threatens to displace your perspective on the ultimate need that you have. Your temporal needs are real and we are to bring them to Jesus just like this paralytic did. And we can rest assured that God will either give us immediate relief or he will give us grace to trust and endure. But still, this passage reminds us that that category, whatever it is and how big it is, is still only secondary to the need we have for forgiveness. It's so easy to lose sight of the greatest gift we, have, we could have ever received, the forgiveness of our sins. Charles Spurgeon once noted, his little sentence, you can write it down if you're taking notes. Pardoning mercy is of all things in this world most to be prized. Pardoning mercy is of all things in this world most to be prized. Friends, this text is a gift 
it is a reminder, it is a question. Are you prizing most the pardoning mercy of God? And do you live giving him glory for it? That's application number one. And the second is this. First, we must glorify God for his mercy. And second, we must bring people to Jesus. We must bring people to Jesus. Did you notice in verse two, one of the striking things in this passage, is kind of a peculiar point here, is that after these men brought the paralytic, right? It's like, behold, and they brought him to this paralytic. It says, Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Well, the paralytic and those who brought him. The friends, Jesus saw their collective faith. And just sidebar here for a minute. That means this man had good friends. Okay, I had this impression when, when I was preparing this message that some of you needed a passage about friendship, that maybe some of you young adults particularly needed a passage about friendship, and I think the Lord wants to give you one. It's this passage right here, and it's, it's you know, um, ones in Mark and Luke that tell the same story. Now, this passage shows us you, what a good friend is. A good friend is a Christ-centered friend, someone who keeps leading you back to Jesus Christ. And being a good friend is being a Christ-centered friend, one who keeps leading others back to Jesus Christ. So this is a great passage about friendship, but then even more than that, we see in the example of these friends, an evangelistic example for us to follow. Are we good friends to sinners? Are there people that burden us because they're not saved? And so we're praying for them regularly and we're talking to them regularly and we're just longing for them to come to Jesus. These guys, listen, these guys, I love these guys. They didn't care what it cost to bring their friend to Jesus, right? Who cares if they look like fools carrying a, a stretcher through a crowd and up on a roof? Who cares what it takes if they have to unroof a roof? Who cares what that would cost if they have to come back and put it all back together? Who cares? We just want to get our friend to Jesus. Friends, that is a good friend. A friend in need is a friend what? Indeed, right? So having been reminded of the great pardoning mercy of Jesus and having the example of the paralytic friend set before us here, let's leave today both glorifying God for his mercy and recommitting ourselves, heart, soul, and mind to be a friend of sinners, to bring others to Jesus. Friends, this is what it's all about. Jesus came as a friend of sinners and he sends us out as friends of sinners. So let's be good friends. Let's bring them to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for, we thank you for this passage, God. It's a familiar story and yet, with fresh eyes, it provokes us in fresh ways. God, I, I pray that you would help us to be a church that is just um, sympathetically aware of the needs of the lost. That we're aware both of physical needs and we're aware both of spiritual needs and our heart goes out, our heart breaks. We wanna do something about them. As, we wanna relieve their suffering, but as Piper says, especially 
their spiritual suffering, Lord, their eternal suffering. And so, God, I pray that you would help give us a new sensibility, a new awareness, that we would see the needs of others around us, and that seeing would compel us to do something for them. It would compel us to bring them to Jesus Christ. It would compel us to serve them. And I pray, God, that you would also just give us fresh vision of Jesus Christ, our great Lord and Savior the authority of Jesus Christ, not used to serve himself, not used to just sit up in heaven, Jesus, where you could just be glorified up there all by your, yourself, but just like totally immersed in awesome glory, but instead you set all that aside and you come down here to be a servant to people like us. Sinners. Rebels. People who are bored with you and neglectful and mean to each other and selfish. And you said, yeah, you're mine. I've come to forgive your sins. God, fill our hearts with gratitude for pardoning mercy and help us to glorify our great Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, I'd like to invite you to stand here uh, as we go into the Lord's table. This